Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, it's not clear where the fight to raise the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour stands in Congress right now. But while politicians do what they need to do, no one's forcing news media to drown out discussion of the economic and historical sense the simple rightness of lifting the wage in smaller bore talk about current political feasibility. Polls show wide public support across party lines. So it's only elite media forcing the idea that those opposing the move are moderate. While a federal minimum wage increase would affect millions of workers and the social fabric, it would have particular impact on one essential, yet somehow expendable, group, black women. We'll talk about that with economist Michelle Holder, associate professor of economics at John Jay College, City University of New York, and author of the report, The Double Gap and the Bottom Line, African-American Women's Wage Gap and Corporate Profits. Also on the show, the fact that news media can even host a debate around just how poor it's okay to let a person who works a full-time job in a wealthy country be is a sign of the perverse nature of corporate media's storytelling on poverty. Media also distort the history of responses to poverty in this country, which has always included recognition that it's about power and not just money. We talked about some of this crucial but scarcely discussed history a few years ago with Alice O'Connor, professor of history at University of California, Santa Barbara, and author of, among other titles, Poverty Knowledge, Social Science, Social Policy, and the Poor in 20th Century U.S. History. We'll hear some of that conversation today. That's coming up, and we'll get right to it. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you by the Media Watch Group FAIR. As we record on March 4th, some Congress members say they aren't giving up the fight to include a raise in the federal minimum wage in a coronavirus relief package, despite the questionable call by the Senate parliamentarian that its inclusion violates a procedural rule. Significant as that is, and much as we all can benefit from the civics lesson, what do we lose when news media pivot to a conversation focused on legislative machinations and away from one presuming that a measure that says you shouldn't work a job and live in poverty at the same time is just baseline decency, that every day without it constitutes a crisis, and not, of course, a crisis impacting all equally. Often noted but rarely centered is how the proposed wage increase to $15 an hour would address structural racism. Add some substance to that racial reckoning elite media keep insisting we're having, and in particular improve the lives of black women, widely understood as economic linchpins. Joining us now to talk about this set of issues is economist Michelle Holder. She's associate professor of economics at John Jay College, City University of New York, author of the book African American Men and the Labor Market During the Great Recession, and also of the 2020 report The Double Gap and the Bottom Line, African American Women's Wage Gap and Corporate Profits. She joins us now by phone from here in town. Welcome to Counterspin, Michelle Holder. 
Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Well, I'm not saying this isn't a story about Democrats delivering on an electoral promise and what it means for the Biden administration and for the midterms if they don't. I just worry that if it's presented preeminently through that lens, some folks might lose sight of how material, how basic this should be by any criteria, really. But the federal minimum wage affects the lives of black people and black women in particular ways. Can you tell us about that and and what raising that wage could mean for black women? Sure. So there are a couple of facts about the demographics of who receives the minimum wage in this country. One of those facts is that women form the majority of minimum wage workers. More women than men are minimum wage earners. The other thing is that proportionally more black women earn the minimum wage as compared to black men. And so, you know, when you combine those two facts together, the picture is pretty clear. There are about 10 million African-American women in the U.S. labor force. And so, you know, one might imagine that a heck of a lot of those women are earning either the minimum wage or just above the minimum wage. So this issue, while it's been couched as one that disproportionately affects women, if we looked at black women specifically, they are disproportionately represented among minimum wage workers. And so this issue of raising the minimum wage has direct implications for black families and the black community. Well, so black women are both kind of overrepresented or disproportionately represented in minimum wage jobs, but then also there's something regional going on, right? That they're often in states that don't yes. don't have that higher minimum wage. Absolutely. So of the 50 states, about 29 states have a, a higher minimum wage than the federal minimum wage. And then the remaining 21 states adhere to the minimum wage of 7.25 an hour because some of those states don't have their own minimum wage. But there are two notable exceptions to those remaining states, Georgia and Wyoming, both of which have a minimum wage that's lower than the federal minimum wage. But the point of the matter is that of the 21 states that have a minimum wage of 7.25 or even lower, seven of them are located in the South. And more than half of African-Americans in the country live in the South. So we're talking about a real palpable regional difference in terms of what a raise in the minimum wage would mean for black women. The South is an area where, you know, historically wages are lower than in the North. And so absolutely we need to not only look at this as a national problem in terms of how low the federal minimum wage is, but regionally as well. You know, I can never really get my brain around how media can present a corporation as a success, a successful corporation, based on profit margins that are derived from paying workers so little that they rely on government assistance. And we're supposed to despise the reliance on state aid and lionize the billionaire 
that gets rich off of it. And I just really, it, it hurts my head. And that's why I so appreciate how your report, The Double Gap and the Bottom Line, African-American Women's Wage Gap and Corporate Profits, connects those dots. They're connected. Yeah. You know, it's really egregious. First of all, it, just in terms of the, the the current federal minimum wage of seven twenty five an hour that hasn't been raised in over twelve years. Over that same time period, inflation has increased cumulatively by a full twenty percent, and I know that because I've calculated it. But more than that, a person, if you have a family, a small family, even uh, two people, let's say two adults maybe a couple, one who works a minimum wage job, or a two-person family, one is an adult, one is a child. So a single parent household, whether a single mom or single dad. If that earner, the earner in that family is earning seven twenty-five an hour, based on their family size, by federal standards, they are officially poor. This is what we call the working poor, which really should not be in the vocabulary at all. Someone who is working full-time year-round, they and their family should not be poor. But aside from that not insignificant fact, you simply cannot live on $15,000 a year. It's practically impossible for one person to live on that, let alone two people or, or more than two people. So we've got to move the needle on this issue. But Here's where it's been difficult. As I think most of your listeners know, in order for the federal minimum wage to be increased, Congress has to act. You know, a bill has to be proposed, it has to be passed, and then, you know, signed by the president. When you have a Congress locked by partisan bickering, that is not a situation that is amenable to a minimum wage increase. And so ultimately, Paying workers a livable wage gets bound up in political bickering, right. and this should not be the case. There are, I believe, 18 states whose their minimum wages are indexed to inflation. That is the ideal. But the way that the minimum wage has been set up in our system, based on the Fair Labor Standards Act, you need Congress to move any increase forward. And so one can see how we've gone 12 years without a minimum wage increase because of these deadlocks that occur in, in Congress and in the Senate. And in fact, for the Senate to approve a minimum wage increase, a supermajority is needed, not even a simple majority. And in the current Senate that we have, which is almost evenly split, or I guess evenly split between Democrats and Republicans, we're not going to see a minimum wage increase anytime too soon, which is why there was an effort to try to insert a minimum wage increase into the current stimulus package, which most of your listeners know has failed. But that is why that occurred, because for the stimulus package to pass in the Senate, only a simple majority is needed. So if we think of it, though, it's a multi-arena fight, right? You know, because yeah. there is the federal minimum wage, but at the same time, and which obviously is a critical 
fight, which if it were one, would have a cascading effect. And at the same time, we do have states and cities and counties raising their own minimum wage. We have workers who went out in a dozen cities just the other day. You know, so there are other fronts on which to fight this. And again, my concern is that sometimes news media make it seem as though we turned off the spotlight here and we turned it on somewhere else. And that if when they turn off their spotlight, the action stops. And that's just not the case. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And I'm a black woman and I have to be an economist. And -hmm. it is very clear that the people making decisions at the national level, whether or not to increase the minimum wage, are not representative of those folks who will be affected by a minimum wage increase, which is really women of color, black and Latinas and Native American women and Asian women. Those demographics are not well represented in the Congress, uh, particularly in the Senate. And so it's so unfortunate that the whole aim of the original push to establish a minimum wage in this country, the goal was to ensure that people, workers received a livable wage, enough compensation to pay their bills and feed their families. That was the goal. And that goal has been lost, completely lost. Well, let me just ask you finally, in terms of what journalism can help and can hinder, you know, I mean, so much of the coverage seems to be about, does a fast food worker deserve $15 an hour? You know, whereas the framing could be, why should U.S. taxpayers be subsidizing poverty wages at profitable corporations? You know, you could spin the whole conversation by just focusing it differently and by, as you're saying, by including different people in the conversation. But I, I, I just wonder in terms of helping us move forward from, yeah. you know, even from myth busting, you know, raising the minimum wage costs jobs, you know, it's we have all the re- it's it's racist because, uh, you know, poverty wages are black people's entry into the workforce. We're seeing all of these kind of old arguments rehashed. And I just feel like yeah. people are ready to go beyond myth busting to really vision building and talking about it yeah. in a in a positive way. I wonder what you think reporting could do, what would you like to maybe see more of, maybe less of, that could move us forward on this issue? Well, definitely, Janine, I like and I want to build on what you mentioned about the fact that, you know, a worker making minimum wage and and trying to support a family on that, you know, often does have to rely on social assistance, on Medicaid on food stamps, or maybe, you know, possibly on transfer payments in the form of TANF, that is costing the taxpayer. And thus, the taxpayer is subsidizing corporate America in that regard. In the paper that I wrote about the double gap, you know, it doesn't really talk about that. It talks about how workers really, black women in particular, are subsidizing corporate profits. But in terms of the minimum wage earner, Absolutely, it is costing society. So, yeah, let's move away from the narrative of whether or not a fast food worker deserves, you know, $15 an hour, which I absolutely believe he or she does. But clearly, that narrative hasn't been attractive enough to really get the needle moving in the direction that it needs to go. So let's talk about these workers 
who must rely on additional social assistance, which is paid by taxpayer dollars. And yes, this subsidizes corporate America. Should we really be subsidizing corporate America? They just received an incredible slash in the corporate tax rate. They really don't need any further subsidization from people in this country. Well, I guess the pushback to the double gap faced by black women is the idea, which is, I find poignant, but also powerful, that because of the multi-layer and intersectional harms that we face, policies that lift up black women can't help but help everybody else, you know. And of course, we know that one of those among the many women evincing that was Janelle Jones, and she called it Black Women Best. And Janelle Jones is now the chief labor economist. So is this idea that centering black women in terms of policy is helpful to everyone? Is that idea being mainstreamed? My hope is that it will be. I think that it has absolutely gained traction in the progressive community mm-hmm. because it on its face makes total sense. If policies are conceptualized to deal with the most marginalized in a lot of ways, then certainly those policies will help those who are not as marginalized. So it can only serve to help everyone who needs help. But I I don't know (laughs) if at this juncture, given the still political divide in our nation, how mainstream that idea has become. I believe that in the progressive community, it has become a linchpin. I mean, it is really something that we point to, and it's hard to push back on that idea. And, oh, by the way, Janelle Jones and I have a co-authored article right now in Feminist Economics, which is available online uh, for free through July. Uh, That's just a quick aside. I think that where we are at in this country in terms of what we've seen with the last presidential election, what we've seen with QAnon and and certain conservative movements, and certainly, you know, the resurgence of white nationalism, that this very potent idea is receiving a lot of pushback such that it's difficult for it to gain traction in a mainstream way. But my hope is that it will. Well, there's the work. Yeah, there is the work. We've been speaking with Michelle Holder, Associate Professor of Economics at John Jay College, City University of New York. The book is African American Men and the Labor Market During the Great Recession. That's out from Palgrave Macmillan. You can find the report, The Double Gap, and the Bottom Line on the website, RooseveltInstitute.org. Michelle Holder, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Well, thank you so much, Janine, for inviting me. In September of 2016, Counterspin spoke with historian Alice O'Connor, who brought a story of the war on poverty that had little to do with elite media's Heritage Foundation-inflected version of it as a paternalistic campaign to throw cash at poor people, obviously unsuccessful since people are still poor. It seems very relevant to current media debates in which the idea of rechanneling resources currently going to law enforcement or community budgetary control more broadly is treated as an idea from Mars, which requires that media evade or ignore or erase some relevant recent history.
Alice O'Connor is professor of history at the University of California, Santa Barbara, director of UCSB's Blum Center on Poverty, Inequality, and Democracy, and author of, among other titles, Poverty Knowledge, Social Science, Social Policy, and the Poor in 20th Century U.S. History. I asked her first to take us back to 1964 and what the war on poverty looked like in real time. In real time, the war on poverty was associated with a very specific set of programs that surrounded what was most widely known as the Community Action Program. The core idea of the Community Action Program was that federal government funding should go for a whole variety of social services to local communities who would have a say on how those resources were redistributed and were distributed in such a way that they would work to the benefit of that community and that those funds would be planned and used with the so-called maximum feasible participation of the poor. And that was the most widely known of the War on Poverty program at the time. We can talk a little bit later about why it was very, that was very controversial. The reality, though, is that the War on Poverty as a broader initiative was a, a whole series of interlinked and really embedded programs that started with the administration's commitment to bring the economy much closer to what they considered to be full employment so that they would generate jobs that paid a decent wage. At that time, the minimum wage was higher in real terms than it has been until fairly recently in some states, that is, to say. I mean, right now, the federal minimum wage is pathetic, but it it was closer then to what people are striving towards now in the $15 minimum wage. Mm -hmm. So the idea was the number one weapon in the war on poverty, and I have to underscore, this is the language that was being used at the time. The number one weapon was a faster-growing, full-employment, decent-paying, good-job-creating economy. And the commitment of the administration, more broadly speaking, was, you know, to make that happen. Second was a whole other related series of programs that were related to the Great Society that were basically about expanding the welfare state. And I'm not just talking about the welfare state targeted at low-income people and people below the poverty line. So this was an era and a period in which we got Medicare, Medicaid, as just two examples of really massive expansion in the provision of health care that reached a much broader array of people than people who were below the poverty line, but also created the Medicaid program, which was and continues to be targeted at people below the poverty line. So... The other programs that were related specifically to the War on Poverty were programs like Head Start, which is still around today and is considered to be one of the most successful social policy programs ever, but a perpetually underfunded program, so a program that has never reached all of the children and families that are actually eligible for it, as well as programs like Job Corps and all sorts of other jobs and training programs, community-based health centers. So the idea was that we're going to really have a comprehensive array of initiatives. The other one I should add, which is very, very important at the time, and it continues to be very important, but it was subsequently eviscerated essentially by the Reagan administration, was legal assistance for the poor. 
not just narrowly construed legal aid, but the kind of legal assistance that would help low-income people get not only the representation, but the legal rights that they deserve. So that's just a way of kind of trying to get across the comprehensive nature of the idea behind the war on poverty. It was actually the fact that it wasn't just handouts of cash, so-called, but that it was actually about social change. That was why it was attacked at the time. That's a big part of why it was attacked. Two things I one can say about this is that when we go back and look at the comprehensive array of initiatives, we can see how there was a huge amount of potential at the time for a structural reform vision. But what happened in actuality was that a lot of that potential was not met, mm-hmm. in part because the idea of really really growing the economy and creating jobs in such a way that people would have access to them, well, frankly, never panned out because there was not a strong enough a commitment to it. But on the, the community action front, which was really where the war on poverty came under immediate fire and the most controversial part of it that continues to feed into this completely distorted narrative of failure was about the fact that the initial plan for the community action, especially coming from Washington, from Washington bureaucrats, was, okay, this is going to be a really good way to kind of coordinate services in a more rational and holistic way so that we don't have all sorts of, you know, narrow programs kind of competing with one another. If we really coordinate things at the local level, we can have truly comprehensive interventions. And then we should let local people have a say in how this happens. What a lot of those architects, at least some of them, didn't adequately anticipate was that the idea of putting resources of any kind in the hands of low-income people, in particular low-income minority people, low-income women, and low-income people of any race, but especially low-income African-Americans, was going to be a threat to local power structures, segregation of local power structures, and it was going to be an avenue of political empowerment for poor people and poor people's movements and organizations that they were going to use to the hill. And, you know, when when those dynamics started playing out, which was very quickly, you got, on the one hand, really intense, what I refer to in the piece that you talked about as massive resistance to the implementation and to the, you know, the use of those funds for genuine empowerment, on the one hand. And then you also very quickly began to get attacks on the program, not just from arch-conservative segregationists, which you certainly did, but also from Liberal Party establishment figures at the local level who said, wait a minute, we don't want people, we don't want other people in control of these resources. We want to direct where they're going to go. That was historian Alice O'Connor, professor at UC Santa Barbara, speaking with Counterspin in 2016. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.